You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. They were surrounded by hostile enemies in a hostile city with hostile religious leaders. And there were even people who were at that moment plotting to take the life of Jesus. And really, any of his, any of his disciples and anybody who named his name or claimed to be faithful to him, like Lazarus, for instance. So the truth that Jesus was going to leave them left them anxious and fearful and disturbed. And in the midst of chapter 14, Jesus has been giving to them all kinds of promises that are really intended to settle their hearts. He has promised them that he was going away to prepare a place for them, that he would come again and receive them to himself, that they would be forever with him, that the Father would be with them, that the Father would love them in a special and unique and distinct sense uh, because of their obedience to Christ, and that the Spirit of God would be within them, and the Spirit of God would be with them and abide with them forever. And all of these promises and all of these truths are intended to settle down their disquieted and troubled hearts. And now we come to another promise in chapter 14, verse 27. We came up to verse 26 uh, last week. We're looking at verse 27 today. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. That's the verse that's going to occupy our attention this morning. Uh, That is another promise that Jesus gives here to his disciples. And in one sense, this is a new subject in that chapter 14, he hasn't mentioned peace yet at all. There's been no promises about peace no mention of peace up to this point. But in another sense, this is, this is an entirely old subject in that he has promised them that the Spirit of God would be with them. And then we have to ask the question, who is it or what is it that mediates or communicates that peace to the heart and to the life of a believer? Who does that? That is the Spirit of God. That is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Or that is part of the fruit of the Spirit. That is one of the ways in which the Spirit of God manifests Himself in the heart and in the life of a believer by giving that believer a peace really that surpasses all comprehension like we mentioned and saw in Philippians chapter 4. So in a sense, this is a new subject. He hasn't mentioned peace, but in a sense, it is also an old subject in that he's still talking about the Spirit of God. And you and I should not and cannot really conceive of this peace that he's describing here apart from the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So it is kind of an older subject in that sense. This Look at the end of verse 27 where Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. If that sounds familiar, it's because that's how chapter 14 started. Do you remember that? Chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So here we have at the beginning of chapter 14 this reference to do not let your heart be troubled. And then here toward the end of chapter 14, that command, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And sandwiched between those two commands, to not let our heart be troubled, are all of these promises that really are the ground for our peace. So we're going to be looking at the peace of Christ today, the peace that's mentioned in verse 27. What type of peace is this? How do we get this peace? How do we live in this peace? How is this peace given to us? And what does this peace mean? What is Jesus describing here? The peace that is promised here is a peace that only Christ can give and only believers can receive. That's kind of the central idea of what we're going to be looking at this morning. It is a peace that only Christ can give and a peace that only Christians, only believers can receive. So let's look at the first half of that. This is a peace that only Christ can give. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. There's something unique about this peace. The subject of peace is all the way through the New Testament. You read in the beginning of Paul's letters, he'll say something like grace and peace be with you. Uh, we read of the peace of God which passes all understanding, which guards our hearts and minds. We're told in Colossians chapter 3 to let the peace of Christ dwell, dwell richly within our hearts. Um, we speak in here of the, of the peace being the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, peace is all the way through the New Testament. It, it is such a rich subject all the way through every aspect of New Testament teaching that for me to even just read the verses in the New Testament that talk about peace would fill the rest of our time here this morning. And that's to say nothing of going into the Old Testament where the same word is mentioned in upwards of 250 different passages in the Old Testament. This is a major theme. It's a rich theme. And, and one that is uh, really inexhaustible. We're just dealing with verse 27 today, and we have to ask, what is this peace? So that's what we're going to answer. What is this peace? What is the nature of this peace? The word translated peace there is the Greek word eirene. Eirene. It is used throughout the New Testament to speak of peace. There is a similar word, though it is not identical, there's a similar word in the Old Testament, a word you have probably heard that speaks of peace, and that is the Hebrew word shalom. Now the Greeks and the Hebrews thought entirely differently about the subject of peace. Greeks thought of peace as being a state of not being at war. They were so used to being at war all of the time that to be not at war, they would designate that state or condition as, as a state of being at peace. That it was not a condition, they didn't think of it in, in a, as a condition between two people. Like, Lanny and I are at peace. Or I finally have peace with my wife. That's not how they thought of peace. Not as a, a condition or a situation between two people, nor did they think of it as a state or condition between two entities, like two nations not being at war. It was just a condition or a state of not being in conflict or hostility. That's how the Greeks thought of it. So the Greeks thought of it primarily in terms of what it is not. Hostility and war and conflict. Now the Hebrews had an entirely different idea of peace. The word shalom was sometimes used of not being at war, not being in a state of conflict or hostility. But most often the word, the Hebrew word shalom, which is translated in the Old Testament as peace, and which when it was translated into Greek, they used the Greek equivalent irene to translate the word shalom. But the idea of shalom to the Hebrews meant something far more. It was not just the cessation or the absence of hostility. To be in a, in a state of shalom for a Jew meant to be in a state of positive blessing. It was to be in a state of welfare or prosperity or health or completeness or wholeness or contentment or fulfillment. It was to enjoy in a positive sense all of the rich blessings that we think of as attending a state of peace. So it wasn't just the cessation of hostility, but it was also the, the existence or presence of all the positive blessings that would come with that. So Hebrews, or sorry, Greeks thought in terms of no war. Hebrews thought in terms of no war, but so much more. And here's what's interesting. In the New Testament, and here in this context, Jesus uses the word eirene. John uses the word eirene. But he obviously does not mean just a state of cessation of hostility or the absence of war. That wouldn't make sense, would it? If you translated that in verse 27, look at it again. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. He's obviously not describing just a state of not being in a condition of war or in hostility, but describing some sort of an inward tranquility, an inward contentment. So here's what's interesting. Though Jesus and the New Testament writers used the Greek term eirene, which just meant the state of non-hostility or not war, they pack into that word when they use it in the New Testament all of the idea of shalom. Keep in mind that the New Testament writers were Jews. 
They thought in terms of shalom in the Old Testament and that idea of peace being a, a state of positive blessing. So when they use the term erene, they're translating into that all of that understanding, that Jewish understanding of being at a state of blessedness and positive, a positive peace, a positive blessing. It is kind of like us with the word love. We, we sort of do the same thing. The, the Bible, when the Bible uses the word love, it uses different types of love. Phileo love, erotic love, agape love, which is the love that God has for us, a, a love that is unconditional, a love that is, that is one directional, a love that gives and sacrifices, that's agape. But when we say, when I say, we only have one word in English, right? And it's not very robust. Because I can love my dog, love my wife, and love God. But I, I mean different things by all of that, right? And yet, it, with our term love, we have to sort of import a whole bunch of things that are not just contained in that word, because it's not a real robust or specific word for describing love. Same thing with erene in peace. The Jews, speaking Greek, had to use erene because that was the only word that Greek offered, which was any way equivalent to shalom. But they had to import into it all of this, all of this state of positive blessing, wholeness, welfare, health, prosperity, not just financial prosperity, though it could be that, but it was the positive blessing of God. Now there is to the idea of peace, both an objective side and a subjective side. Let me describe to you and illustrate you the difference between an objective state of peace and a subjective experience of peace. So when you think objective and subjective, you think of objective, you need to think of an object, something out there. And when we say objective peace, we are describing a state or condition of peace, which I may or may not feel. When we describe peace in a subjective sense, we are describing a feeling or an experience of that peace. In the peace in verse 27, there is both an objective sense to it and a subjective sense to it. We have to remember that they go together, but they are distinct and different. So let me show you how they are distinct and different. Somebody can be at a state of objective peace and not feel it, and somebody can feel a state of subjective peace without actually being at peace. Let me give you an illustration. I've shared Christ with people who were in the last hours, literally, of their lives. And you explain to them that if they were to die in a state of their unrepentant sin, without trusting Christ for salvation, that the wrath of God will be poured out upon them for their sin, and they need to repent and trust Christ for salvation, or they will enter eternity without a sin-bearer. And you can explain all of that to somebody. And I've had somebody actually say to me, when I was sharing the gospel with him on his deathbed, he said to me, I have made my peace with the man upstairs. Which, that just irks me whenever anybody says that that way. It refers to God as the man upstairs. He said to me, I have made my peace with the man upstairs, and I, we, I have made peace on my own terms. I am ready to die. If you make peace with God on your own terms, you are still at war with Him. Because God calls us to make peace with Him on His terms, not our terms. So here was a man who, who felt as if he were at peace with God and ready to die because he had, he had nothing left that he needed to say or do with the man upstairs. And yet, though he subjectively felt at peace, he was objectively really at war with God. And his hostility to God and his hatred of the light kept him from bowing his knee in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ all the way up, as far as I know, even until the time of his death. He died in his sins without Christ. But he felt subjectively as if he were at peace. He was very peaceful in his heart and ready to die. Yet his objective state was quite different. He was really at war with God. Now on the other side of the ledger might be a Christian who has repented of their, of their sin, trusted Christ for salvation, and objectively it is true that they are not at war with God because their accounts have been settled. Christ has borne their sin. They've repented and placed their faith in Him, forgiven of their sin. So with God and before the Lord, their eternity is secure and they enjoy objectively peace with God without 
any fear of condemnation or animosity. They are at peace with Him through the death of Christ on the cross. And yet, because of life circumstances or because they fix their hearts on worry, they do not enjoy that peace or experience that peace. And they can be in a state of great inner turmoil and distress and be troubled in spirit, even though objectively they are at peace with God. Do you understand the difference between the two? In the case of the first man, he felt a peace that he had no reason for feeling. In the case of the second person, he feels a worry that he has no reason for feeling. So you can enjoy objective peace without experiencing it, and you can experience a subjective peace without really being at peace with God. Those are the two totally different sides of peace, and we need to talk about both the subjective sense and the objective sense of the peace. So let's deal with objective first. Why is it that men, you and I, in our fallen state, need an objective peace? Because Scripture says that we are born in sin, we are born dead in sin, we are born alienated from God, The Psalms say, Psalm 58, verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. Ephesians 2 said we are born dead in our trespasses and sins, alienated from the life of God. Our minds are darkened. We are children of wrath. Our mind, our futile mind is set in a state of hostility against God, which it cannot in its own strength turn away from. It cannot remedy its own situation. We are at war with God from the moment that we come from our mother's womb. We are in a state of hostility and war against the one who is the light and against the one who dwells in light unapproachable because we are friends with the world, born into this world, dead in our trespasses and sins, already in a state of enmity and hostility. And if that condition of hostility is not is not uh, seized upon by God and changed by His will and His act of grace, then it will harden itself into a, an, an incalcitrant life of disobedience and hostility that will persevere until the time of our death and will make repentance less and less likely all the way up until the end of our lives because we are hardened in that condition in which we are born, at that state of hostility. But when God grants repentance and the rebelling sinner lays down his arms and bows the knee and repents and turns from his sin and trusts Jesus Christ for salvation, his sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, He is declared righteous in the sight of God and given a righteousness that he can never earn, does not deserve, and can never tarnish or give up. He is given that condition of righteousness and all of his iniquities are imputed to a sin bearer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is born again. And we are changed from enemies of God into sons. As the song that we often sing says, once his enemy, now seated at his table. We just got done singing. Hark the herald angels sing. I mean, not singing today, but recently. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. That's what we need. We are in a state of hostility and we need reconciliation. We need not to meet God halfway. We need to cease our rebellion. Stop rebelling. Turn from sin. And bow the knee to the sovereign king. Against whose gracious and loving rule we have actively and hostily rejected and and worked against. That is why we are at war with God. So what must happen for us to be objectively put at a state of peace? We must be reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. And that is what Christ has done for sinners who have trusted Him for His people. He has reconciled them to the Father. He has wiped away the animosity and the hostility. So if you are in Christ, right now, seated here, you are in a state of complete peace with God. You have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, 
Therefore, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, having been justified, that is, declared righteous, through faith. We have been put at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ because we have been justified and declared righteous through faith. So now there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and those who are in Christ stand before God completely put at peace. He will never wage war against us. The unbeliever is in the condition of the first man I gave you just moments ago. The unbeliever who thinks and feels that he is at peace with God, but is actually at war with God, is in the most distressing and troubling and disconcerting situation he could possibly be in. To stand in a place and to think you are at peace with God, but to stand in a place where the bow of God's wrath is bent toward you, and the cup of His wrath is filled up to the top, almost overflowing, and ready to be poured out on your head, if at any moment He should choose to make your heart next heartbeat, your last heartbeat, to be in that condition and to be oblivious to that, is not the most distressing condition you could possibly be in. The only reason that any sinner ever sleeps at night is because they are completely oblivious to the truth of their condition. If they understood what it would mean to step into eternity and stand before a wrathful and holy God and to face Him for their sin, they would never sleep a wink or they would be terrified that if they shut their eyes, they would never open them again and that they would step into eternity without Christ. That is the most terrifying condition to be in. To have to, to have subjective peace, a feeling of peace. An unbeliever can only have that because he is oblivious to his real danger. Oblivious to it. He lives in ignorance. He is self-deluded and self-deceived. And he thinks he stands in peace when in fact he does not. Well, that's objective peace. How do we get the objective peace? It is through Jesus Christ. That's why he calls it my peace. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Why does Jesus say it's his peace? He says it's His peace because He alone can give it. He alone can grant not only the subjective feeling and experience of peace, but also He alone can give the objective peace with the Father. It's His peace because He bought it through His atonement. He bought it through His sacrifice. He bought it with His blood. And so it is His peace to give. And He grants this objective and subjective peace only to those to whom He wills. This is not a a general blessing that is spread out over all people. Everybody gets a little share of it. This type of peace is a peace that only Christ can give and only Christians can receive. And this peace is His because He bought it, He owns it, and it is His to give to whomever He wills. And if you're in Christ, He has given it to you because He has willed to give it to you. And it's His peace and and He dispenses it on His terms. And notice that He does not give you possessions. doesn't promise you possessions. My possessions I leave to you. My silver, my gold. Matthew Henry has actually a a very good quote concerning this verse in his commentary. He writes this, When Christ left the world, He made His will. His soul he bequeathed to his father and his body to Joseph of Arimathea. His clothes fell to the soldiers. His mother he left to the care of John. But what should he leave to his poor disciples who had left all for him? Silver and gold he had none, but he left them what was far better, his peace. Now you realize that silver and gold are troubles and trials and tribulations in the making. You understand that? It is the blessing of the Lord that makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. But oftentimes silver and gold can do the exact opposite of giving us peace. You think people who have a lot of money are at peace? They're not. Because as Solomon says, as riches increase, so do those who want to consume them. And then you have to be worried about keeping them. Once you get them, you got to worry about keeping them so that nobody else takes them. And then who are you passing it on to? And you might pass it on to a son who's wicked and disobedient and ignorant and foolish, and he might squander what you've worked your whole life for. And so all of these things concern you. Do you realize it is so much far better? I don't even know if that's the phrase that's structured like that. It is far better to have a little bit and peace with it 
than to have all the world's goods and no peace. Because if you have just a little bit and you have peace with it, guess what? You get to enjoy all that you have. But if you own the entire world and you don't have peace with it, you don't get to enjoy anything that you have. No matter how great or how little it is. But Christ doesn't leave us possessions. doesn't promise us riches. He's not even promising us here in this text a a, uh, he's not even promising us here in this text a freedom from trials and tribulations and sufferings and afflictions. He is promising us here the peace that goes with us. And that's the subject of the peace in the midst of it. And that's the subject of peace. And the subject of peace is what he is describing when he says, I leave you my peace. He's obviously not describing here a, a state of absence of hostility or conflict. He, he's not describing here a state of being at peace with nations. What is he describing? He's describing an inward contentment an inward peace, freedom from worry, freedom from anxiety, freedom from a troubled spirit. How do we know that it is subjective and not objective peace that he is describing here? Because the very next phrase says, do not let your heart be troubled. He's describing there a subjective experience and the worry that we experience when we let our hearts be troubled and when we let our hearts be fearful. So this is the subject of peace. And the Bible, let me give you a few verses from the New Testament that describe this. Uh, in so many different ways. Philippians 4, verse 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the word guard there is an active word. It doesn't just sort of mean like a, like a fence is set up, but something that actually is actively attacks those things that attack it. It is an active guarding, a very active guarding. The peace of God which surpasses our comprehension and understanding actively guards the hearts and the minds of the people who are in Christ Jesus. In Romans 14, verse 17, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the that's the characteristic of the kingdom of God, a a condition of peace. Not just object of peace, a cessation of hostility, which the kingdom of Christ will eventually bring, but an inward peace that ought to characterize all those who belong to the kingdom of God. Romans 15, 13, Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice there the connection of being filled with joy and peace and abounding in the Holy Spirit. Again, who is the one who mediates this blessing of peace and absence from worry and anxiety to us? It's the person of the Holy Spirit. Second Thessalonians 3.16, Paul says, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. That's interesting. May the Lord of peace himself grant you peace. This is his gift to give. And what he is praying and asking for the Thessalonians is that the God who is characterized by peace will himself grant that same peace to all those who are believing. Now this is not, this is not a promise that you and I will not face trials and tribulations and temptations or persecution. We will. Man is born for trouble like the sparks fly upward. Everybody who lives in this world experiences suffering and affliction and death and disease and disability, and all of the things that afflict, those things are common to all men. So this is not a promise that we will be free from all of those things. But it is a promise that we can have the peace of Christ in our hearts and in our minds, guarding it, and be at a a state of settled contentment and freedom from worry and freedom from anxiety in the midst of all of those afflictions. Jesus is obviously not promising His disciples that they will be free from everything that will disturb their peace because in the very next chapter, He says, those who hated Me are going to hate you. Those who persecuted Me, they're going to persecute you. And there will come a time, He says in chapter 16, when those who kill you think that they are offering God's service. So He is about to tell them, look, things are going to be really tough for you. 
really bad. There's going to come a point where people think that they're serving God by killing you. That's how motivated they're going to be. Like Saul of Tarsus, for instance. And they're going to persecute you, and they're going to hate you, and the world will hate you. But my peace I leave with you. So what is this peace? It is that subjective contentment, that freedom from anxiety, that freedom from the trouble or hostility that goes on in our hearts and in our minds in the midst of life's trials. And it is not, notice verse 27, it is not as the world gives. My peace I live, I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. This is a different peace. This is different than the peace that the world offers. The world offers a peace. You realize that, don't you? The peace that the world offers is, is mostly a distraction, a passing distraction. Uh, here's how the world says that you deal with anxiety and worry and, and, and troubles in your soul. The world says, pursue this possession, pursue this position. Um, get addicted to this, enjoy this pleasure, indulge this temptation, numb the pain, be distracted from the pain, watch this screen, be entertained, be amused, stop thinking about it, get your mind off of it. They want you to be distracted from the realities of life, or they offer you flat denial. Just go to your happy place and, and think happy thoughts. And if you think happy thoughts, it'll all go away. And you can sort of create your own reality. Everything will be fine. Everything will go. It's just, if God, God has got a purpose in all of it, so just think happy thoughts and go to your happy place. It's either distraction or outright denial. That's the peace that the world offers. The world offers a peace in the midst of trials and temptations. But the difference between the peace that Christ offers and gives and the peace that the world offers and gives is that the peace of the world is temporary, it is illusory, and it only ends in eternal tribulation. And most of the time, it, 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 it involves denying reality and indulging sin. The peace that Christ gives is a different peace. It is not a denial of a reality, but a facing of reality and what that is to the glory of God. It's not an indulging in sin. It's actually a denial of sin. And it doesn't end in eternal tribulation. It ends in eternal bliss and eternal happiness and eternal peace. Those are two totally different ideas of peace. The world can offer you peace. And you can go to a counselor and listen... They could give you a drug that would make you unmoved if you were being burned at the stake. Of course the world can give you peace. They can make you not even care about anything, ever. But that's not the peace that Christ offers. The peace that He is offering and He is promising is not a denial of reality, but the ability to face reality and to be completely content with it. So now the question is, how do we get that peace? Is there some formula? Is there a a list of steps. Is there something that I do? It's in the second half of the verse. This is a, a, a peace that only Christ can give. And second, it is a peace that only Christians can receive. Look at the second half of the verse. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. That is something that can only be obeyed by Christians. In its truest sense. An unbeliever can deny troubles, and deny fear, and run from troubles, and run from fear, and use all kinds of, of, of worldly and man-centered thinking to deal with those issues, but only a Christian can truly look fear and anxiety and worry in the face and handle it biblically. This is not a peace that is available to the world. The world can't handle peace the way that we handle peace because it, it lacks the capacity, it lacks the, the power to do so, and the indwelling Spirit of God. But the Christian, the Christian can obey this. Do not let your heart be troubled. And I said at the beginning, this is the second time in this chapter that Jesus says this, and I think that as he, as he went through 
all of all of the promises. He started with that. Do not let your heart be troubled. As he goes through all of the promises in chapter 14, he finally comes to the end of chapter 14. And I, I think Jesus could probably read on the face of the disciples that even though he had given them all of these promises, they weren't understanding most of them. And they weren't appreciating them and, and applying them. And he reminds them again, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So how is it that we as Christians deal with this? How do, how do we handle worry? Well, what is worry? It's a sin, is it not? Is worry not a sin? We say, Jim, I do that all the time. Oh, so? You just confess that you sin all the time. doesn't matter how often you do it. What is worry? Worry is a sin. Okay, so let's not deal with the subject of worry just a second. Let me illustrate how do we deal with sin. If worry is a sin, how do we handle sin? What do we do when we sin? We repent. We confess it. We cry out to God for mercy for it. We ask Him to give us strength to turn from that and to appropriate the peace and the blessing that He gives and the strength that He gives to honor Jesus Christ in this situation. You say, but Jim, sometimes the battle against worry rages fierce. That's right. Sometimes the battle against lust wages fierce. Sometimes the battle against gossip wages fierce. Sometimes the battle against prayerlessness and pride and self-reliance wages fierce. It doesn't matter how fierce the battle is. The question is, how do we fight it? And it's the same way we handle worry, the same way that we handle any of those other sins I've listed. We acknowledge that it is sin. We, as Christians, turn from it. We confess it. And we turn to God and ask Him for the strength and the help to face it. And we refuse to yield our members as instruments to obey that sin. If it is worry, I refuse to let my mind obey that sin of worry. And worry wants to get in there. And anxiety wants to grip my heart. And it wants to stir up trouble. And I acknowledge it for what it is. This is sinful. This is a lack of trust in God. When I am worrying, something is wrong with my thinking. That's the bottom line. When I am worrying, something is wrong with my thinking. There is something about God or the truth or the future or my relationship with Him that I am not believing in that moment. Now, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is for anybody that is here. I can only know what that is in my own heart and in my own mind. But if I find myself in a state of worry, I have to say, what is it about God that I'm not believing right now? Is it that I don't believe that He's in control of the future? Is it that I don't believe that He's in control of my present? Is that I am not understanding that the Spirit of God is with me, that God is providentially working out all things for my good, that, that I am at peace with Him, that my eternity is secure. What is it that is causing me worry? Is it some lack of provision? He's dealt with that. I, I don't need to worry because just as He provides for the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, He'll provide for me and His providence. He's working all of this out for His glory and for my good. He has the future in His hands. What is it about God that I'm not believing in this moment? That's what's causing me worry. The reason we are anxious and fearful people is not sociological. It's not a result of our conditioning that we were brought up in a certain type of household or such and such an environment. It's not emotional. It's not a chemical imbalance. The reason of our, of our worry and our anxiety is not political or geopolitical. It's not because the nations are at war. It has nothing to do with who's in the White House. You know what it is? It's theological. The cause of worry is theological. What am I at this moment not believing? What is the idol of my heart? that is making me worry and be anxious at this moment. So, how do I deal with worry? The same way I deal with every other sin. You say it's a fierce battle. I understand it's a fierce battle. Everybody has a fierce battle. Whatever it is, you have to do it. deal with it the same way that we deal with every other sin. 
We repent of it. We turn from it. We trust the Lord in it. We ask ourselves, what is it about God that I am not believing and not trusting in this moment that is the cause of this worry? What is the idol of my heart that needs to be mortified and put to death in this moment? And we mortify sin and we put it to death and we refuse to yield our members as instruments of that unrighteousness, which is worry and anxiety. And instead, we call out to God for mercy and His promise is He will give us peace. Listen, Trying to mortify the sin of worry is useless if there's no promise for peace. It's useless. But the fact that He has promised to give me His peace is my motivation to put to death the thing that keeps that peace from being experienced in my life. So is this a promise that we are going to live financially prosperous lives, free from pain, free from affliction, free from suffering? No, it's quite the opposite. It is the promise that in the midst of all of that, God has promised to grant us His peace that tranquility of spirit and heart, a subjective experience of the reality of our peace with God, which manifests itself in all of the areas of life and works out into all of these details of life so that I need not fear, I need not worry, and so I can say, I will not let my heart be troubled, nor will I let it be fearful, because Christ has promised me His peace. And so I put to death that sin, and I appropriate the blessing. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Him, and do not let your heart be fearful. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, these are, are such strong reminders to us of, of, of all the blessings that you've given to us and the reality of our peace with you in an objective sense and of the subjective experience that ought to be the, the part and portion of all who have believed upon Christ. We thank you that you have promised to give us this peace and that is itself the strength to mortify and put to death the sin of anxiety and worry. May this peace be with us. As Paul says, may the God of peace grant us this peace which might guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, that we may obey the commands of Scripture to not let our hearts be fearful, to not let them be troubled, and to worry about nothing. Uh, that is possible for us, and we pray that you would help us to do that, to appropriate these blessings and these promises. There is no conflict or disagreement here between the gifts of our God and the responsibility that we have to appropriate those precious blessings. May it be our lot, we pray, and the lot of all those who trust in Christ your Son, both now and in eternity. We thank you for the peace we have with you. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.